The Exchange podcast is brought to you in part by your university system, including Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire. Visit usnh.edu slash yours to learn more. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Canoy, and this is The Exchange. Talk of unidentified flying objects usually elicits eye rolls or snickering. But late last year, Congress said it wants serious answers to the UFOs our Navy pilots are seeing. And top U.S. intelligence agencies have a report that's supposed to be coming out any day now. We'll find out more this hour as we cover the latest news in space science, including a partial solar eclipse just this morning, which anyone out very early near New Hampshire's seacoast might have seen. Of course, our guests were up before dawn observing this event known as a ring of fire, and we'll get their take on it as well as other astronomy headlines. Exchange listeners, as always, we welcome your questions. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. And our phone number is 800-892-6477. Well, we're talking with Mal Cameron, former astronomy and space educator at the McCullough Shepard Discovery Center. Welcome back, Mal. Good to see you. Great to be here, Laura. And also with us, John Jean Forty, director at the UNH Observatory, Extension Associate Professor of Space Science Education, and Youth and Family State Specialist. And John, thank you for being here. It's always good to have you. My pleasure, Laura, as always. And also with us, Nicole Gallucci, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at St. Anselm College. A big welcome, and Nicole, thank you too. Yay, good to, good to be here. So all of you, let's jump right in with the news and let's talk about about that ring of fire eclipse. I love that. Um, Just a few hours ago, Nicole, when exactly did this happen and what did it look like? So uh, I am here in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, and it was already underway by the time that the sun was rising right here at at around 5.06 a.m., uh, living in Manchester, I've got lots of houses and trees around, uh, so I actually drove up to the highest point I could think of, which is a parking lot of a Lowe's in Bedford, um, and which is also near my gym, which was uh, very, very good because I like go right to the gym. But um, it was already in progress as it was the sun was rising. The maximum was at about 5.34 a.m. Maximum was like 80% covered. Um, these numbers are going to be a little different, you know, depending where you were. Uh, but when it was coming up, it looked like, like, uh, devil horns or like just a big smile of a smiley face, um, uh, poking through the clouds, poking through the clouds here. Wow. And we've got pictures on our website, our web post, nhpr.org slash exchange. So John, where did you go to see this thing? I did the observing of the eclipse this morning from the UNH observatory. We don't, have, uh, we don't have a very high location, but um, we do have a pretty good view to the east. Uh, the sun rose above the east-northeast horizon this morning, a lot earlier than you, Nicole. It was 5.04 here, but <laughs> I couldn't see the sun until uh, well after 5.30 because of the, we do have some trees. But we did have some partial clouds, but it was still a very pretty uh, event, and um just watch watch the whole thing. It didn't really last very long because we were looking at, looking at not a ring of fire because we weren't in the path of annularity, right? An annular eclipse is was, occurs when the moon is really far away from the earth in its orbit and it's not close enough to cover the whole sun. So there's a ring of sun around the new moon. This is the only time during a solar eclipse this is the only time you get to see 
uh, the new moon phase. Otherwise, you never get to see the new moon. So we weren't in the path of annularity, uh, but we did get to see a pretty nice partial solar eclipse. It was really, really pretty. Yeah, you had to be really far north to get sort of a, a, a full better show, John, right? Like, you know, yeah. way up in northern Canada or something. Yeah, north, north, like north of Minnesota and kind of it curved over to the west and on into uh, really northern Canada and then into Russia. So, Mal, what did you see and how did you see it? Uh, we got up a little bit before five this morning and we had to drive about three or four miles north of here just to find a break in the trees. We're surrounded by forests all around this area. And uh, we found a, a V of sorts of light where the sun was starting to come through and my wife was with me and said, let's pull over right here. This is a good spot. So we stood, <laughs> we just stayed there and waited with our glasses. We're, I don't know what the traffic thought when we were sitting there with our flashers on and the and the glasses on our head but uh, we had the special glasses and we did get to see most of it happening through that little slot in the trees which was very nice to see well i was still asleep so uh, i will take your word for it <laughs> oh no <laughs> i know but we've got pictures again and listeners you know if you did get up early like our guests and see that special ring of fire partial solar eclipse tell us about it you can join us at 800 892-6477. Send us an email exchange at nhpr.org. So Nicole, besides being really pretty to look at, what do these teach us? For me, I I definitely use it more as an outreach opportunity to get people to go out and see something cool. Um, I actually dropped off some of the sol few, I had like four or five solar viewers left from the 2017 eclipse that I dropped off at my gym for folks that were coming in early. Um, another thing, uh, another thing I like is when you compare, like we were comparing the times of sunrise when, um, uh, you can really get people to understand, uh, a little bit, you know, the, the scale and size of the earth, the rotation, um, all those things that we try and teach in our intro astronomy classes that involve, picturing the three dimensions of the earth going around the sun and the moon. Um, so I like to use it as a teaching lesson um, and just something cool to see. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about the interaction between the sun and the moon. It's another thing to see it sort of transpiring right in front of you. For you, John, you're an educator. What's the teachable moment with what happened early this morning? Well, solar eclipses are opportunities for us. Total solar eclipses are a good opportunity for us to see the sun's atmosphere called the corona. It's really our best chance naturally to get a look at the sun's really hot atmosphere that um, extends millions of miles into space and is millions of, of degrees. Uh, it's just really super hot. And during the total, total solar eclipse, the moon's blocking the sun's disk so it doesn't hide the corona, which is e easily hidden by bright light coming from the sun's surface. So, but, but there's a, it, but it's also very beautiful. It also helps us teach students and, and everyone else about the alignment that's required for an eclipse. Why don't we have eclipses every month? We have a new moon every month, or why don't we have a, a lunar eclipse every month that happens during the full moon? Why don't we have one of those every month? So it gives us great teaching moments. And back in 1919, there was a very famous solar eclipse that made Albert Einstein really famous because it helped prove his theory of relativity that gravity of the sun could actually bend light. 
Oh, and, wow. Uh, I didn't know that, John. That's fascinating. Yeah, so that, that, was a, that was a long time ago. It was like almost you know, more than 100 years ago that uh, solar eclipse actually helped Einstein become um, a rock star in the science world. Wow. Okay. So speaking of history, a little bit of an awkward segue here, but, but I'm going with it. Today is my last day hosting this show after a little more than 25 years. And so in that spirit of commemoration, I wanted to ask all of you just briefly what the major astronomy headlines were 25 years ago that you were excited about. So Mal, go ahead, you first. Okay. Uh, I was looking back in history and I was reminded of uh, one of the things that influenced some changes in my job and all that stuff was the arrival of the Galileo spacecraft at Jupiter after many years of traveling through space. It was uh, actually arrived on July. Um, I have to check my notes here. Uh, do, I'm sorry, December 7th, which is an auspicious day in itself, in 1995 uh, is when it, and it spent eight years in orbit around Jupiter before it was finally uh, sent plummeting through the atmosphere to burn up. But uh, we learned a lot about Jupiter and its four moons. Many of the initial uh, pictures we got from the four Galilean moons have been uh, started with the Galileo spacecraft. Wow. So that was something that was catching your attention uh, right. 25 years ago. And boy, those stories, you know, they they follow through to the current time. Actually, um, Mal, I want to let you know, Steve from Concord sent us an email who says, what did we learn from Juno's flyby of Ganymede? Ganymede being, for those listeners who don't know, one of Jupiter's moons, which Jupiter has some pretty interesting moons. Can you um, uh, give us anything on that question there, Mal? Um, Juno's flyby of Ganymede. I, I just heard about it and I'm not sure what they found, but I know Ganymede is an unusual moon because it actually has a magnetic field around it just as the Earth does. And it's the largest uh, moon in the solar system. Uh, now, I don't know what else they discovered in the meantime. Maybe my comrades here can fill that in. Sure. Um, before we get to the 25 years ago thing, yeah, go ahead, Nicole, to Steve's question. What did we learn from Juno's flyby of Ganymede? Um, so I also just saw it this morning. Um, so there's not a lot of science out beyond the initial images, but I, the images are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so I just want to tell everybody to go go take a look at them um, because it does really give you some amazing surface detail um, of this moon. It's it's not heavily cratered. It's somewhat cratered. Um, it has a so that means it's probably got a younger surface. Um, and uh, there's this there's this great feature that looks like this light colored um, splat, <laughs> like a splat of from uh, an impact. That's, an, that's um, a scientific term, had, isn't it? <laughs> that is absolutely scientific. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, probably had some icy material come out. Um, Ganymede, yeah, I think because of the magnetic field, Ganymede's one of my favorites. Well, and it's interesting. I'm glad we're talking about Ganymede because on this show we've talked a lot about Europa. That's the moon of Jupiter that gets a lot of attention. So. Good to pay attention to some of those other cool moons. Before I go to your reflections, Nicole, and yours, John, um, let's take a call. Geraldine is calling from Salisbury. Hi, Geraldine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Welcome. Good, good morning. And I first want to say thank you very much, Laura, for all your many years of wonderful broadcasting. You are going to be greatly missed. 
And oh, I also thanks. want to shout out. <laughs> you're welcome. And I want to shout out to Mal Cameron. Um, we had the pleasure of working together in a theater project many years ago. Um, but I got up this morning at three o'clock and drove to the coast. Oh, Geraldine. And, <laughs> well, <laughs> I had to in order to get there on time. Um, and uh, it was really spectacular if you had the right equipment because um, I had seen the solar eclipse a few years ago and I had the glasses, but I couldn't find them last night. But I did have my cataract glasses, so I put those over my sunglasses. There were people, a lot of people around who were expressing that they weren't seeing, you couldn't see anything because of the sun. But once you put on the sunglasses and the solar glasses, you could see it perfectly, and I was passing my glasses all <laughs> over to the, you know, there were like five or six people up on the top. And apparently, uh, there was a gentleman who was down on the beach that they had spoken to. I think he must have had twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 worth of camera equipment, but he literally was filming the whole thing. And I don't know um, if that, that kind of equipment has any kind of cloud-piercing capabilities, so he might have been able to see a little more than we could at the very beginning because at the very beginning you couldn't see it but once it just wow. got up just a tiny bit above the clouds maybe about by five say 15 and you can see it you know you can see the moon coming down sort of and then going back up the other way it was very very beautiful Oh, Geraldine, I'm so glad that you called and um, John you took I was pretty impressed with the photos that you took um, at the observatory. So uh, what are your thoughts, John, on sort of Geraldine's, you know, sort of wanting to see it, going to see it, not being able to see it, and then she puts on these special glasses and voila. Well, that's what eclipse glasses are for. Um, and it's good that you use your eclipse glasses because that's the only safe way to look at a partial eclipse. There was nobody on the planet that should have been looking at this eclipse without their eclipse glasses. Even in the path of annularity, there was enough sun showing from behind the moon where that could damage irreparably your eyes. But as far as cloud piercing equipment, there's no cloud piercing equipment that we have. Otherwise, I would own it. And um, <laughs> anything. So we, can only, we can only observe objects that that's light makes it to us. So there's nothing except maybe a great big gigantic fan that can blow clouds away, which we really don't have. So, but he might have been using some filters that helps minimize the impact of thin clouds because that's what most of us had this morning. Uh, and they were thick at times, but they, as the sun gets higher in the sky, the light from the sun is passing through less and less dense atmosphere of the earth. And it's affected less by it. So as the sun got higher, regardless of what happened to the cloud cover, it does get a little bit more transparent to light. So okay. as the minutes went on, it was actually a little bit better. So Well, we had another caller who couldn't hang on, who said uh, the Mount Washington Observatory also posted some amazing photos. Um, I'm smiling a little bit because Nicole had to drive to Lowe's in Bedford to see it. Obviously, they find a pretty good view up at uh, on top of the rock pile. So um, that's yeah, great. And they've got yeah. some... They've got some good pictures on Instagram um, from the Mount Washington Observatory. So that's great. So getting back to this sort of brief commemoration, Mal talked about the major astronomy headlines he was watching 25 years ago when this show got started. Um, Nicole, how about you? What were you sort of paying attention to um, 25 years ago? So the, the mid to late 90s were really, really, really good time to be a dorky, tween 
who <laughs> what decided that she wanted to be an astronomer when she grew up. That's awesome. Um, so uh, yeah, so looking back at um, and and I, I think John will, will give us a better um, overview of the first uh, exoplanet discovered around a sun-like star. So that was in late 1995, 51 Pegasi B. Um, and now we, we've cataloged thousands of exoplanets, but this was way back when, you know, people were searching for the first one. Um, and so I, as a dorky tween, um, was cutting out newspaper articles from the science section of our local newspaper because that was a thing that existed <laughs> back then. <laughs> a local um, newspaper. Yeah, with a science section. I was cutting out articles and taping them to my bedroom door. Um, and uh, watching the uh, pictures come back from the Galileo spacecraft and a little bit later, um, the, uh, the lander and rover on Mars. And so that for me was a really exciting time um, to follow all of these cool discoveries uh, at a time that I was just getting into science and just deciding that this is, this is really what I wanna do. Oh, wow, that's great. John, how about you? So the, the 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 big thing for me that was almost coincided with the first exchange program was a paper published by a Swiss team of astronomers. As Nicole mentioned, it's a star that was discovered to have, it was the first exoplanet orbiting a sun-like star. A couple of years before, there was discovery about planets orbiting um, a pulsar, which is kind of um, an exploded rapidly spinning neutron star, and no one expected that. So a lot of people, a lot of astronomers said, well, that doesn't really count. We want a planet that's orbiting a star that's you know, giving off light normally. So the Swiss team um, discovered 51 Pegasi. Um, it's a star that's just within naked eye visibility in the constellation of Pegasus. So it's, it's kind of easy to show people on a night when you're having a star party, you're showing people around. And the, the, two, the two astronomer team that made this discovery and published this paper in Nature in October of 1995 actually won the 2019 Nobel Prize or half of oh, the Nobel wow. Physics. That's so a big deal. it's good to see that after all that time, exoplanet work. Now, I, so I, I sent um, some information to, to, to um, NHPR about where we were with the current count, because you always ask me about that on all of our astronomy updates. The exoplanet so count. Yeah. When I checked this morning, uh, there was one more planet. So we're up to 4761. So the first first planet orbiting a sun-like star kind of started us counting exoplanets. So so as of this morning, you know, June 10th, 2021, 4761 planets in 3000 more than 3520 planetary systems. So that means we know for sure, these are confirmed exoplanets. So we know there are 4,761 planets orbiting their stars in 3,520 planetary systems. And, and that now, is a perfect segue to what I wanna talk about next. Uh, but go ahead, John, and we'll let you finish there. <laughs> nope, nope. You go. I wanna hear your segue. Well, it's perfect segue to what we're gonna talk about next, which is, a very high level government report on unidentified flying objects. And with all those planetary systems out there, you know, you know where people are going with this. Is it possible that there is 
life? And is it possible that that life has actually touched down to sort of look at our planet and then fly off? And this is no longer just, you know, um, something that is eliciting giggles and eye rolls. There is a U.S. intelligence report uh, that's supposed to be coming out soon on this. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So thank you for that perfect segue, John. Um, All that's coming up, plus your questions and comments. Join us at 800-892-6477. Again, 800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. More with our Sky Crew in just a moment. This is The Exchange on NHPR. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today, our Sky Crew is back and we're covering the top headlines from the world of space science. We've already talked about the partial solar eclipse that was visible here in New Hampshire very early this morning. In a moment, we're going to talk about a forthcoming U.S. government report on UFOs. That's right. You heard me, UFOs. And later on, we'll turn to space tourism. And uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts on that, too. What do you think of private companies sending people on space flights? Would you buy a ticket if it weren't, I don't know, a zillion dollars or so? Send us an email. Let us know what you think about these stories. It's exchange at nhpr.org. Or you can give us a call. It's 800-892-6477. Our guests are Mal Cameron, former astronomy and space educator at the McAuliffe Shepard Discovery Center. Also, John Jean Forty, director of the UNH Observatory, extension associate professor of space science, education, youth and family state specialist, along with Nicole Gallucci, assistant professor of physics and astronomy at St. Anselm College. Okay, so all of you, let's tackle this. A top government government report is supposed to come out soon about what are officially known as unidentified aerial phenomena, reported largely by U.S. Navy pilots. So, Nicole, again, this often generates eye rolls, but Congress thinks there's enough going on to order U.S. intelligence agencies to study this. So what are they looking at? Yeah, so this so um, UAP, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, is another way of saying UFO, Unidentified Flying Object, um, which is something, um, like you said, uh, often an object of ridicule, um, often uh, a staple of science fiction as well. Congress uh, has a recent interest based on a number of reports from uh, Navy pilots. However, it actually goes back a little bit further. Um, Harry Reid, the senator from Nevada, had an interest um, in uh, had an interest in UFOs, and he was able to get a commission started back in 2007. Um, that commission continued. I don't know when it ended. It depends. Um, I've seen differing differing accounts, um, and it sounds like this new effort um, is along the same lines from the same you know uh, you know from the same um, concerns from the same folks basically. Uh, but this was written into the massive COVID relief package that was signed into law at the end of 2020. Uh, so it's an interesting new chapter in uh in the search for ufos um but i won't be a buzzkill just yet i might be a buzzkill a little later (laughs) Uh, 
Well, and just from some of the reporting that I saw about this, Congress late last year instructed the Director of National Intelligence to provide a, quote, detailed analysis of unidentified aerial phenomena data from multiple agencies and report in 180 days. So that time is about up, um, but no word yet on when this full document will be out. But it seems like they're mostly, you know, concerned about whether um, other nations, especially probably Russia and China, are sending stuff up into our airspace sure. without our permission. But John, you know, while government officials are quick to say that this is really about national security threats, what's the take within the astronomy community on this? Well, the, the, so not to be a wet blanket, but just because we see something in the sky that we don't know what it is, doesn't necessarily make it a spaceship. So in science, we look at the most likely explanation for a phenomena, especially when we don't have a lot of data. We like to see pictures. We like to see, you know, transistors that fall out of the spaceship. We like to see some evidence, some hard evidence that we say, yeah, this is a piece of a spaceship that crashed. And look, here's the log book. Here's the captain's log. And look, uh, I have, a, you know, a ray gun or something. We like to see some evidence. So we really don't have a lot of evidence. We have some footage of some unusual things that fly. And pilots, both commercial and military pilots, are very, very good observers. And they don't make stuff up, OK? So there are some things that we've seen and we've imaged and we've videotaped that we can't explain. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're being watched or visited. It'd be great if we were. I'd I'd really love to, to support that, but until someone brings in some evidence, like I mentioned, I was just kidding before, but we need some evidence that proves that there, that, that it, it escalates the chance of it being an extraterrestrial being, right? There's lots of planets out there, but there's this huge problem in the universe. It's distance. That's a killer. So, my theory, well, that's a killer for us, but maybe other intelligent civilizations have figured it out in a, in a snap. That's true. That's true, right? You can if, tell if, I've watched a lot of science fiction when I was little. Well, I mean, if you told somebody 150 years ago that we'd be communicating, um, you know, around the world in, in almost, you know, split second time, they'd say, yeah, right. So, so... That, that's that's always a possibility, and you, you don't know what you don't know. But as far as we're concerned, there's vast distances in the universe. And in order to traverse those distances, it's a tremendous expenditure of energy and fuel. Anyone traveling interstellar distances has to overcome that huge problem. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's some child born today that in 20 years or 25 years, they're going to discover how to travel near the speed of light. But it's going to take a lot of energy, and they're going to have to really want to go and travel light years away to say hi to somebody. Well, and so speaking of that, we got a really interesting take on this story from Mark in Westmoreland, who writes, Surely, if these vehicles really are from another incredibly sophisticated civilization, wouldn't they likely be what we call drones? Would another advanced life form really risk incurring harm as they observe the planet? Maybe they do originate from aliens, but I don't believe aliens are actually aboard. That's a, an interesting theory, Mark. Thank you for mm. writing. And Mel, what's your reaction to this news of a, you know, again, a very high level report coming out soon? 
You know, I, I think that people just want to, uh, when they think of the UFOs, they think of uh, extraterrestrial uh, drivers inside them. And I think it's because they want to. And they think that, well, they're kind of like us. That's what intelligent life, you know, they're all going to look like us. They may be a little different, like in Close Encounters, you know, they had longer arms and things, but they had the <laughs> arms and the eyes and all that. Yeah, like E.T. was kind of cute. He had arms and legs and eyes. And Right, yeah. right. But what I would like you to think in the other direction, what if we had the capability to go somewhere else in the universe and find a planet, uh, you know, that's we're reasonably certain has the technology that we want and we want to spec there. If we are able to eventually fly ourselves to this other world, what would we do when we arrive there? To me, wouldn't we just like to land there and say, hey, here we are. <laughs> In instead English, playing, which they would understand. Of, <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody understands English, right? <laughs> but 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 basically, look, this big achievement we did, we made it across these uh, uh, distance in space and landed on your planet. And we are friendly people, believe it or not. Uh, but what would we do? We'd, 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 like to, we'd like to communicate with whatever species we found there to see what was going on and not be playing hide and seek and saying, see if they can catch us on their radar or something. Right. Um, well, Mark, thank you for writing in. And again, listeners, you can share your thoughts on any of these astronomy headlines that we're covering this morning, whether it's that partial solar eclipse that happened just a couple hours ago, or whether it's this government report that's coming out about unidentified flying objects. And we're going to turn to space tourism. So listeners, again, if you want to weigh in on that, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. Or give us a call, 800-892-6477. And Nicole, did you want to jump back in? Yes. Um, uh, yes, I wanted to, to jump back in. Um, when I told you I was cutting out articles about exoplanets and taping them to my bedroom door, they were being taped next to uh, posters of the X-Files because I was also <laughs> big into the X-Files, but um, actually very, which helped me get very, very much into the whole UFO phenomenon as a 12 year old with unrestricted access to the internet. Um, <laughs> so I've actually, like I said, I've actually been on, on both sides of this. Um, it's funny when you read um, Carl Sagan, famous astronomer and, and science communicator, he writes a book called Demon Haunted World. He too was fascinated by the UFO phenomenon early on. Um, but when you stick around long enough, um, the evidence that, that is being presented for me and, and for Sagan and, and as, as John was describing before, just doesn't pass muster. Um, we're looking for something more. Um, in, in fact, I've, I went to a mutual UFO network conference about 11 years ago with a friend on a whim. Um, and it was interesting because there's a wide range of, of ideas about what these objects could be, um, but not a lot of agreement um, across that, obviously. Again, I think when there's a lack of data, you have a lot of uh, space to fill in. I'll point out that we now all walk around with cameras in our in our phones, basically. Um, and so what you have seen increase over the last decade or so are pictures of um, pictures of aerial phenomena 
that we knew existed but didn't have a lot of footage of. So fireballs, you know, massive meteors coming through the atmosphere and burning up. We have a lot more footage of that than we did before everybody had a camera in their pocket. What you don't see is a rise in photographic and video evidence of these, of, uh, you know, UFOs that could potentially be spaceships. Um, I actually really like the email that came in before, the idea of it being drones, because that is something that a lot of folks think would be the most likely thing because biological squishy beings don't do well in space, um, that it could be drones coming from another planet. Uh, and of course, you know, even more, probably more worryingly, it could be drones um, from another country. And I think that that is probably what's driving this yeah. more than anything is that they can't be. explain it they're worried about the fact that they can't explain it. It looks weird, um, but you know, being able to even even for an expert, being able to judge sizes and distances and speed is is super difficult. Um, so like I said, I I also am on the I want to meet an alien train, but I'm <laughs> I'm not convinced. Um, but yeah, <laughs> well, it's an interesting confluence of sort of national security and very serious types. You know, worried that this may be you know again, Russia, China, Iran, who knows, sending drones into our airspace. And then people who you met at that conference, Nicole, who were like, woohoo, I want to meet, you know, quote unquote, little green men. So we will turn away from this topic as much as we all might want to stay on a little bit longer and turn to space tourism. Next month, Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, will be flying to space on the first crewed flight of the New Shepard. And that's the rocket ship made by his space company. Yes, he's not only selling you books and toilet paper, he's making spaceships. Um, his space company's Blue Origin, for those who don't know that. The flight is scheduled for July 20th. Bezos's younger brother, Mark Bezos, is also going to be on the flight. So Mel, you know, as someone who has, you know, been a NASA educator and who has watched sort of uh, the trajectory of space flight for a long time, what does this moment represent in the bigger picture of space exploration? Well, uh, it's not the first time there's been a, a somebody, a, a normal, non-technical person necessarily going in space because we flew a few people who paid a lot of money to do this, to fly to the, the space station from Russia over the years, and they call them space tourists. Uh, what Bezos is doing, though, is really intriguing. I kind of admire the guy because uh, he's the head of the company that's developing his own spacecraft and he is going to be one of the first passengers on that spacecraft. Uh, what was missing is there is a third seat on that spacecraft that has gone out for bid. And uh, there has been a lot of high bidders on it. And the, the last uh, bid that he got on it was uh, uh, probably $2.8 million from somebody who's offering to fly. Now, maybe somebody upped the ante on that. I'm not sure. But this flight is not a, an orbital flight. It's just uh, what we call a ballistic flight. It's going to go up uh, just like Alan Shepard's first flight did. Uh, it was like a 15 minute flight. This one's supposed to last 10 to 15 minutes and give you a few moments of um, what they call zero gravity, but microgravity, anywhere you float uh, and then come back to earth again. So he has him and his brother and soon to be a third person, whoever the highest bidder is, I guess he has to make up for his costs somewhere. So he's putting him out for bid. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah. yeah. So Mal, he's not going to, you know, they're not going to 
orbit the Earth or say hi to the right. astronauts at the International Space no. Station. They're just kind of no. going up and going down. That's it. Wow, I wouldn't pay two point eight million for that. Of course, I couldn't pay two point eight million for anything. But <laughs> like, give me more than that for my two point eight million. Go ahead, John. Here's a here's a bit of space industry gossip. I heard a little oh. birdie told me that <laughs> Richard Branson is trying to one up Jeff Bezos and fly in early July and beat him into space. Oh, so now it's, it's not going to be an orbital flight. It's going to be like, yeah. like now. So it's just going to be a suborbital go up, go down, just like yeah. the first two U.S. flights were. And that that's it. But, you know, it's it's to the point now where you have all these big egos and it's becoming more and more. Um, let's say it's going to becoming closer and closer to normal people being able to fly in space. Right, probably by the the mid to late 2020s, there will be a space hotel orbiting the Earth, and you can pay your several million dollars for a four day stay there. But that will probably happen before the end of the decade, and you can pay money right now for a reservation. And there are insurance companies wanting to insure these companies and their future space hotels. Oh wow, this is very real. It's going to happen, and and Bezos and Musk and and Branson, they're just at the cutting edge. There, this is just the, the the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Nicole, what I mean, do you, you think? Oh, I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. You, you can take a zero G flight for four thousand dollars in an airplane, right? Now I know four thousand dollars is is a lot of money, but hey, if you want to be weightless, that's kind of what it's like being in orbit around the Earth. But you know, that's that's. I think I think we're we may be closer than we think. Once tourism takes off, they're going to find ways to lower the price and make it safe so that more people can do it. Wow. Space Hotel, you heard it here first, uh, folks. Go ahead, Nicole. You know my thoughts, Space Bro is going to Space Bro, you know? <laughs> There's uh, a little bit of, like I think, like you're saying, that, you know, the big egos um, happening here. I would love for some, I, I don't think I would take the space flight. Um, like you said, I think it's a whole lot um, for not a whole lot of floating. Uh, I would totally, if anyone wants to sponsor me on the zero G flight for, what is it, four or $5,000, I'm down. Uh, <laughs> I'm down for that. Let's see if I succumb to the vomit comet. Um, <laughs> I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting development. It's something that is slightly concerning um, because it's a, it's a new natural, you know, low earth orbit is a natural resource um, and we're expanding into it very quickly um, with human and non-human, you know, non-human um, spacecraft. Um, and there's not a whole lot, you mentioned insurance companies, there's not a whole lot of uh, space law that's that's really well, um, has really well been tested yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's there's a lot of complications for us as a society opening up a new natural resource. Um, and so they're forging ahead with it, but as a whole, uh, you know, we have to think about how you know, how do we want this to, to progress? Do we want to, to be free reign um, or do we want to set some restrictions and, and ground rules? I mean, oh, I, so, I'm not going to yeah. deny anybody a fun trip. But no, this that's really interesting. And I had not thought about it that way, Nicole. So just 
briefly explain a little bit more for people like me who hadn't thought about low earth orbit as a natural resource? Sure. Um, yeah. So just like, you know, we have, uh, you know, land, oceans, air, low earth orbit is another natural resource that uh, for one thing is um, between us and being able to observe the night sky uh, or the sun, the daytime sky, whatever you like, um, as well as a, an actual air, I guess not just area of volume in which you can put, you know, we have very important satellites up there that track the weather, that study climate change, that allow us to communicate all over, you know, the world um, inst nearly instantaneously. But that's, that is a space that we're sharing. And so to think of it as um, it's, and it's definitely not infinite. So it's helpful to think of it as, okay, we're sharing this space. How are we going to share it? Um, how are we going to, you know, minimize possible disasters? How are we going to minimize the effects on, um, you know, each other's spacecraft? If once you have more than, you know, two or three space agencies flying things up there, it get, it'll start to get a little more complicated. Yeah, and crowded and, um, oh, that's really interesting. And actually that gets into something I wanted to talk to you guys about, and that is, rising amounts of space junk, space debris, which is becoming a hazard for spacecraft. The International Space Station reported just recently that an extremely tiny fragment hit one of its windows and caused some damage. The European Space Agency and NASA say it was caused by something no more than a few thousandth, thousand, <laughs> having a hard time saying that one, of a millimeter across, crashing the window though at high speed. They said likely candidates are a paint chip or a small piece of metal. So John, like this teeny, teeny, you can't even imagine how small it is, but it hits the International Space Station. It damages a window. I mean, how big a hazard is this? And where does this space junk come from? Well, it's a huge hazard because things are moving fast, right? And when things are moving fast, they don't have to be very big to cause damage. Right, because just recently, even more recently than the than the incident you pointed out, there was a small hole, uh, 0.02 inches. All right, so two hundredths of an inch across uh, in the uh, robot arm in the International Space Station. So 0 0.02 inches might not be very big, but if that fragment, whatever caused it, they don't know what caused it, um, was a little bit bigger and it hit. Um, a, a crew habitat area that could puncture and then you lose your atmosphere. So it doesn't have to be very big to cause damage. And, and think about it, a paint fleck, who cares about a paint fleck when you're on earth, right? They're so small, they couldn't hurt, you know, a paint fleck couldn't hurt anything. But think about it, they're moving, moving very, very fast. So, you know, something two tenths of an inch across is 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 huge right it, it's it's it has a lot of momentum and that can easily it's not like a space station or spacecraft walls are you know three inches thick they're they're pretty thin yeah so but, that they can but, get the craft up there so yeah anything any small piece of any object orbiting in low earth orbit is a big potential hazard and impacts have already been noticed wow so so it's a big problem. So Mal, you know, where do these little fragments, which as John explained, 
are very dangerous because they're going so fast. Where do these come from and how do you clean them up? Uh, well, <laughs> a stellar broom, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, or a vacuum but, cleaner uh, or something. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because they're, as far as official items that have been going sent into space, since Sputnik went up in 1957, um, there have been around 9,000 uh, items sent into space. And those are the big hulking things. And But as they go around and from the uh, tremors of spaceflight itself, little stuff starts to peel off of them is what oh, I see. happens. And sometimes uh, they'll be floating along with them or riding along at 17,500 miles an hour on average to stay in orbit. And sometimes they'll bump into other things and they'll rub off a little bit more and not do any damage. But uh, you always think about if you've seen the movie Gravity, uh, what can happen oh. is something called the Kessler effect uh, where they they do that, but John disagrees. All right, that, that was a bad movie. I know everything was wrong about it, but as far as even the direction they were traveling was wrong. But uh, that's 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 another thing. But they had the Kessler effect down pretty well. <laughs> but uh, right now, out of all those nine thousand uh, pieces of uh, uh, of stuff that, that were sent deliberately on orbit, the actual probes themselves. Only about 2,000 of those are actually active. So the balance is just roaming around up there at various altitudes. You've got the low altitudes of um, like 300 plus or something uh, miles away, up to 22,000 miles away where the geosynchronous uh, satellites go. Wow. Well, um, one of my favorite shows over the last 25 years has been when you and I, John Gene Forty, sat down and talked about the space science that is represented in the movies, remember? And there were some very good ones and there were some very bad ones. So <laughs> I'm really glad that you mentioned that, um, Mal. Coming up, as many parts of American life open up, we're gonna hear what that means for astronomy, plus a couple more of your emails. Um, you can keep them coming in, we'll try to get to them. It's exchange at nhpr.org. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Canoy. Tomorrow, it's the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup. And among the many stories, we'll cover NHPR's report on how the state may have made its vaccination data look better than it really was. Join us for the Roundup with host Peter Biello, Friday morning, live at 9. Today, our Sky Crew is back with the latest from the world of space science, and there's been a lot to catch up on. Listeners, you can join us by email at exchange at nhpr.org or with a call to 800 Eight nine two six four seven seven. So Mal Cameron, John Gianforti, Nicole Gallucci, I am very happy to say these words at long last. Many parts of our society are opening up again. And Nicole, um, what is this going to mean for you? Um, maybe right now, and maybe your your hopes for you know later this year in terms of what you can do that you really haven't been able to do for fifteen months. I cannot wait to teach fully in person. I, <laughs> you know, I just, I get a lot out of interacting with students and it has not been the same over Zoom. And it's not been the same when you have 10 in the room and 20 on the screen at the same time. Um, I am running my Astronomy 101 course again in the fall. Um, and so last fall, I ran it completely online, which is not as fun. 
Um, I had some optional observing sessions that were limited in size. Uh, so I'd really like to get a full class out to our observatory. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to teaching in person. And I'm also looking forward, hopefully, uh, to being in person at the American Astronomical Society meeting in January, because uh, that's where I get to see a lot of my, my colleagues from around the country. Yeah, there's a real energy there, meeting people who are doing the same work you are and, and talking to people. And John, I know you've got some big news around uh, what this opening up means for you. Well, I'm sim similar situation as Nicole. I, I can't wait to get back in the classroom and teach face to face. Um, I, I, I feel comfortable teaching online, but I do miss interaction with students. And our observatory has been closed since spring break of 2020. So I, we miss interacting with the public and doing what we're supposed to do with, with New Hampshire residents, you know, teaching them about things they're interested in and how things in nature affect them. And a lot of things affect us in space. And there's a lot to learn. And there's a lot of people that want to learn about space. So, on the, uh, so I'm really happy, and thanks for bringing this up, Laura, uh, that the UNH Observatory is reopening on the 19th of June. Uh, we, we typically ha had in the past observing sessions to open to the public on the first and third Saturday night. Well, the 19th of June is the third Saturday in June, and hopefully from there forward, we'll be continuing our tradition of our um, twice a month public sessions from 9 to 11 p.m. We're going to start a little early this, this week because I think this, this, this month on the 19th, because I think we have a lot of pent up observing that people want to do. <laughs> yeah, and you have to start uh, late at night, right, John? Because it's almost the solstice, so it doesn't get well, dark till late. Right. So we're going to start at 8.30 just so we can engage the public a little bit more, and we're going to run to 11.30 instead of 9 to 11. So we're going to extend our, our session by an hour, uh, but we have to uh, acknowledge and uh, follow UNH uh, COVID protocols, which we will be doing. And, but hopefully, if the numbers continue to go the way they are in New Hampshire, and the, the right numbers, that is, um, we, can, we can relax some of those as time goes on. But um, folks should expect a little bit of uh, a, a little bit different experience the first couple of times. But we're really anxious to uh, reacquaint our guests and our residents in, 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 in New Hampshire and in other states to, to visit the observatory and start looking at the night sky again. We're gonna be doing a laser pointer show and we're gonna focus on the moon on the 19th. Oh, wow, well, and again, it's good to remind listeners that you know the UNH Observatory is not just for UNH students. I mean, it's for the state of New Hampshire. Um, John gave me a tour many years ago. It's quite beautiful and you can really see cool stuff <laughs> beyond well, what you hoping, can get I'm, at. I'm hoping on the 19th we can tell people about a, a, some new plans we have for the observatory. So oh, that's great. can't say anything now about it, but hopefully on the 19th, enough time will have passed where we can reveal some really exciting uh, things that we're planning here. So summer, I'm going to go to you first on this, Mal, because I know you're really good at this. It's a great time to get out and observe <laughs> the night sky. Go to an observatory if you can. Gosh, last summer, I think I was camping up in Gorham right around the, is it the Perseid meteor showers, Mal? And just lying out yep. in a blanket, it's warm, meteor showers going off. What are you looking forward to um, observing in the summer night sky, Mal? And so what uh, tidbits do you have for our listeners on that? Well, I, I would uh, recommend the same thing you just talked about. Get out there under the sky. You can get more people to join you now because it's safer. Right. Uh, and if you're not sure what to look for, 
uh, let me slyly suggest that you take a trip to the Discovery Center, the Colin of Shepherd Discovery Center, and catch one of their astronomy shows because they'll be able to update you, and they're going to be opening for more hours as well. Oh, but good to hear. Here's here's a trick that I was taught about watching the night sky that you might want to try sometime, and I'll be as brief as I can. But the idea is to find a nice open area with a lot of big openness. You can lie down on comfortably on the ground and just look out at the stars above you. And you want to concentrate just on one little part of the sky and just sit there and relax and look at it and try to get your peripheral vision to include everything in what you're looking at without really moving your eyes. And once you're settled in, tell yourself that you're looking down. So that you're focused, is that what you mean? Yes, no, but what would that feel like if you're looking out at the stars and then suddenly yeah. you feel you're looking down rather than up? Yeah. I might throw up. I might actually throw <laughs> up if I do that. that A little bit of vertigo there. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try I, I, now. Well, yeah, so I, Mal. You, you probably have done that, John. <laughs> <laughs> so Perseids, right? That's in August. Perseids, right. And all up, sorts uh, of constellations that you can see when you go out there. My, the, the big grouping that I look for are three constellations in one called the Summer Triangle. Um, and uh, that's where my favorite constellation is Cygnus the Swan. And if you know how to find that online, you can figure out how to figure it out. But the nose of the swan is a very particular star that I love to look at through a telescope. It's called Alderio, and it's really a double star. And when you look at it through a telescope, those two stars are two different colors. Oh, wow. One is a bluish, one is a blue color, and the other one is kind of a golden color. And it's really spectacular to see through a telescope. Wow. But the Perseids is good. It's going to be actually, the peak is going to be on Friday the 13th of, <laughs> of, um, of August, which is an auspicious time. Get up early that morning, uh, no, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning or so. The moon will be out of the way. It'll be a nice dark sky. But of course, knowing what happens around here, it might be cloudy. So anyway, try it. Yeah, well, last year <laughs> I was really lucky. So that was that was great. Uh, real quick, John, just, you know, super short. Uh, what else do you look at in the night sky in the summer? It's a great time to get out. Well, this summer, the planets will be good again. Saturn and Jupiter will be will be very bright. Venus is in, in, in Mars are visible in the evening sky right now. Uh, a little bit later into the early morning hours, Jupiter and Saturn will be out. Jupiter is really, really bright. Looks like a yellowish tinted star. And in July, it'll even be easier to see because it'll, it'll be up earlier. So planets for me, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm going to look forward to the summer for seeing. Oh, that's awesome. And Nicole, go ahead. I don't get out enough. I'm going to be writing papers. I'm, <laughs> I'm up for 10 years soon. So oh, I'm okay. up for 10 years soon. So, but I, I'm down for the planets. All right. Well, good luck with that, Nicole. Right. Uh, I'm sure that will go well for you. All of you, thank you so much for being with me today and just for educating me over the years. I've learned so much being with you. Um, Mal, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Mal Cameron, former astronomy and space educator at the McAuliffe Shepherd Discovery Center. John Jean Forty, we'll talk again. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. I wish you well, Laura. Thanks oh, for thanks, all the John. years of, uh, of fun. You're welcome. And uh, that's John Jean Forty, director of the UNH Observatory. And Nicole, good luck with tenure. It's great to talk to you.
Thank you so much. And thanks all you guys for letting me join the club. All right. And that is Nicole Gallucci, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at St. Anselm College. Now, while today is my last time hosting the exchange, I really hope you can join us on Monday when Peter Biello sits in the host chair and we'll talk about, well, the last 25 years. That's Monday morning, live at 9. Today's show was produced by NHPR news host and exchange producer Jessica Hunt. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. This is The Exchange on NHPR. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.